Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Oh, introduce myself. So this is Ruzhina Baiti. I am a professor in Electrical Engineering Computer Science Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I have been here for 20 years. Before that, I was for 30 years at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my main f- research focus is on robotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, perception in robotics, vision, tactile perception, <clears throat> and then of course control. Yeah, actually, uh, such a great honor to have you in the, in the podcast. Thanks so much. I I would like to go back when you were a child because when I look into your uh, history in. It sounds really interesting that how you choose to the field of electric engineering and you didn't choose mathematics because of uh, political uh, interest. If you can tell yes. a little more about that, because I think that's shaped who you are as a woman. Uh, yes. If you can tell us more yes. about that. Yes. Well, <clears throat> as um, I said many times, you know, I was born in 1933 when Hitler came to mm. to uh, power, and uh, <clears throat> I was born uh, as a Jewish person. Although uh, when I was five years old, I was <clears throat> converted to Catholic religion. Yeah, I think in part <clears throat> because my parents believed that this is going to save us more. F- you know, from the deportation, <clears throat> which only partially uh, helped. We survived until 1944, and then my parents were uh, deported and, and killed, actually. Mm-hmm. And I survived by simple uh, accident or, or, or luck, because um, when the Nazis came to pick up my parents, I was not in the same room, and they didn't search, so oh. I survived and uh, then I survived part during the, the 44, 45 <clears throat> and part, part of 46 I was in a Red Cross mm-hmm. um, kind of you know, shelter uh, with other war orphans and after that I um, <clears throat> moved to another orphanage which yeah. was um, which was a Catholic orphanage, but I during most of those years, even in that course or in the other orphanage, I went to regular school, and um, I loved mathematics and I was good at that. So, uh, so I really didn't feel that I was deprived of anything, <clears throat> except uh, you know my. Um, except for the fact that I didn't have parents and I didn't have home mm. that many of my peers had. So 
Diktormi aj, aj the Dwelling School and um, um, I guess I finished uh, my gymnasium studies in 1952 uh, in, uh, in Bratislava in Czechoslovakia and then <clears throat> I really wanted to study mathematics but uh, the situation was such that <clears throat> in, that in order to uh, with, with a mathematics degree the only possible jobs were to teach mm. and that was um, the, the condition to become a teacher was that you adhere to the marxism leninism yeah. that the communists propagated and I was not willing to do that. So anyway, so then I entered the electrical engineering because that was the most mathematical engineering uh, profession that I could think about. And so I entered the electrical engineering and I was a student there. And uh, I finished, you know, in those days, <clears throat> they didn't have bachelor's degrees, so we, we were there for five years. <clears throat> so from 52 to 57, so I, I graduated in 1957 with the, with a master's degree in electrical engineering. So mm -hmm. that's basically the yeah. quick summary of my, from my birth to my master degree years which is 1957 yeah. <clears throat> so i think it's, it's a very very inspiring story and maybe what i want to ask you and what is the main emotion or maybe goal with uh, affecting in you or maybe dominating you as a girl to have you ever imagined you wanted to excel in in, in, in what you passionate about so <clears throat> you are right i mean in those days, um, in those days, women, uh, at least the communists, I must say, they encouraged the women to work and and to get some career. But it wasn't in engineering, that's mm. for sure. Um, that was not considered a very much a suitable profession for a woman. It was, you know. There was, you know, we talked today, uh, you know, with all the black, anti-black and black lives matters and yeah. so for situations. So in those days, <clears throat> the, the thing was that um, women were relegated to more the, what you would call the, the social and humanistic professions. Uh, so so when i entered the electrical engineering there were 300 students and uh, out of those 300 maybe there were 12 women and um, by the time we graduated i think maybe three or four of us really finished the five years electrical engineering so <clears throat> so it wasn't uh, that um, acceptable and mm. you know 
Um, and and they, look, prejudices have many shapes and colors. And, um, you know, in America, we are now struggling with the black prejudice, but, mm. but there were many other preju prejudices and experience in my life, which is uh, anti-woman scientist prejudice. And then, of course, being a Jewish, you know, whether we were converted or not, it didn't matter. The, the 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 country labeled you as a Jew, and so therefore you cannot be trusted. Mm. Um, you know, you have more loyalty <clears throat> to Israel than to Slovakia or Czechoslovakia. So that was one of the statements. But I also saw prejudices in around me against the gypsies mm. who were the, the minority who still are and. and an issue in yeah. in that part of the world. So prejudices are are very inherent in I'm afraid that it's almost <clears throat> in our DNA being tribal, you know, you are suspicious of anybody who is not part of your tribe. Yeah. And in this multicultural environment that we have now in America, you you are counting on education of the kind that you would <clears throat> that it would say <clears throat> to everybody um, we are all humans and therefore we have to sort of accept our differences from from different tribes and therefore be civil to each other unfortunately as you see the current situation not the case and especially the African-Americans in America uh, have this um, unfortunate tradition of 400 years of slavery. Mm. And, and even after the abolition, uh, you know, the prejudices uh, are deeply ingrained and uh, it's, uh, it's a struggle how to overcome that. But I can tell you that after my in 1957, mm -hmm. because um, <clears throat> I was not so collaborative with the communist regime, mm -hmm. I was not allowed to stay at the university, although <clears throat> I already had an, uh, had, a, uh, had an invitation to join the mathematics department, but because of the politics of um, education versus other jobs, I was not allowed to take that job. <clears throat> so I was um, sent to a, a industry, to a factory to, to work there. And uh, I start and I was there for five years mm. <clears throat> in an electronic uh, company, which made acoustic devices, mm. electroacoustic devices. And even there, I encountered a lot of prejudices, you know, we cannot trust you, we can, even as a woman, mm. you we cannot believe that you will deliver the work that is needed to be delivered. So prejudices are very deep in people's mind and heart, 
and they show up from time to time and I certainly have experienced them. Wow. I would like to stop in that since you said you had opportunity to join the mismatic department but wasn't allowed because of politics. And that sounds very disheartening to hear that happening to you. And and I I think that's a message here because I think maybe we can reflect when you have not a setback, you was forced situation. There's something you was forced on. You were, and I don't know, it's a kind of despair. I, I assume you that... See, Marva, the problem is that, mm. and today I have to be careful how I say it because some people tell me that, uh, you know, the way how I think about all these prejudices, my approach to all these prejudices, and believe me, when I came to America, and not so much at Stanford, but then when I took my first job at University of Pennsylvania, there were also prejudices, mm. you know. Why why are you working, you know? Why aren't you married and uh, be a nice wife with, uh, with um, <clears throat> two children somewhere on the suburbs and yeah. take care of your family and so forth and so on. So prejudices are very deep. Mm. However, my approach to that, and this is not so popular, was that you have to buckle down and the only way how you can prove that they are wrong is by working twice as hard as anybody else and producing results. Now, you know, this is not a popular view right now with you know, with all these anti or mm. pro-black life matters, you know, people feel that they should not have to work twice as hard, that they should be accepted as they are. And I didn't share that view in my life. Yeah. And even, even today, I, I believe that the only way you can argue in some ways convincingly by showing what you can do and if it and and you have to be better than anybody who is accusing mm. accusing you and this is not a very popular view i i i think i, I agree with you and i think maybe it's debatable here because you are right what what can define you of course we we we're seeking here the power minimum of uh, equality and uh, and inclusiveness right. as well. That's something we can't argue. But I think when it comes to uh, meritocracy and make sure you are eligible, your work define who you are. That's something I think um, you define yourself that uh, I can't do this work. And you... Yeah, you, you have to, you know, show, so to speak, your, your adversary that they are wrong. Mm. And... Um, and you know, I I very much understand the, the 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 current movement and what they are saying. Look, this this is we we we, we were brought here. We were we didn't come here voluntarily. You know, yeah. that's the African American uh, statement, and therefore we deserve to be treated like any you know equally with all the white and other people. You know, Asian or 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 or, 
or uh, Indians who are also in some ways a target in this discussion. <clears throat> and I understand that, as I said, except that my personal way of dealing with all these prejudices was to show mm. that I am better than what they are accusing me of. Yeah, I think that it's very interesting because we have to be honest in that case because in academia, for example, we have certain biases, for example, if you are a woman or depending on gender, oh, yeah. that's, yeah, that's yeah. happening. And maybe here uh, the issue, how, how we can make mechanism or coming up with innovative solutions. Well, look, for example, one standard argument mm. I heard all my life that as a woman, um, you cannot deliver the same amount of work because you will be pregnant. Mm -hmm. and you will have children and you will leave you know for some time to yeah. take care of the, the children this is a standard prejudicial argument and uh, my argument against was that you know this is not the case that you know there are other reasons why perhaps the men in this case would uh, leave Mm. Uh, sickness or some other uh, family reasons or whatever other disability reasons and and nobody is going to question them or presuppose that that's what happens mm -hmm. with the woman there is this presupposition that uh, you know if you are in your 20s or so you will get pregnant you know and you will uh, leave the job for a few months or so and uh, this is a prejudice yeah because this is not the this is i mean it could be but it it cannot be universal claim and and put that on the woman yeah um i agree with you and i think that's something uh I think maybe we have to think about how we can mitigate this effect of prejudice in an academic world and to be judged and who you, how you looks like what your sex is what your gender that that's something I think it's an issue we have issue here and that's we have to acknowledge that yeah it's it's an issue of how do we deal with pre you know you have to accept that prejudices exist mm. in fact I claim that you know, even if you look at the animal world, you know, you have, uh, it's well known that, for example, you have monkey families and if a stranger wants to join, they are not accepted frequently. Yeah. And this is also, I heard that it's in the elephant family. So, so I think this tribalism uh, is kind of part of our DNA. And, um, then that's where I think the root of all these prejudices are. And, and they are not just based on color, they are, they are on cultural, they, they are class, they are all kinds of sources of the, the prejudices uh, are. But mm. <clears throat> what you expect then in a civilized society, you can overcome them by education mm -hmm. okay and uh, that of course is a is is a hard road to take 
you know. But to me, you know, yes, you 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 can demonstrate, you can scream, you can demand, but you know what you get out of this. How should I say? Um, um, collective collective forces mm -hmm. you get some you know maybe legal institutional rules but deep down you know are you really going to change the people's um, deep down the, the, the people's emotional yeah. reactions to the others that's uh, that's indeed powerful, and I think I hope we can reach that. Yeah. So if I ask you, what does inclusion mean to you? Because I think I don't know if you agree with that, but when we look to diversity, we have diverse uh, in a diversity in academia. But when to come to inclusion, effectively speaking, it is just a title, but not really deployed in our system, and we don't have this either maybe inclusive. We have we have at least two or maybe more mm. forces in academia. Yeah. One is that every academic institution has to worry about eminence. Mm. What is the ranking and how good they how how well they are perceived, you know, because that, you know, allows them to bring the best faculty, the best students, the the, the most investment from either industry or government you know so eminence is extremely important for academia mm -hmm. all right but then you have this other force which is fairness mm. okay and and it is there where you know the 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 the, 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 the people are complaining on both sides about prejudices and fairness. So in uh, California, for example, for 25 years, we had a, a rule which was on, which is on the, our, our legal, legal rules, uh, Proposition 209, which says that if you are an employer or or a academic institution, you are not supposed to give preference to gender, color. You know that the only reason you you accept and give jobs is based on merit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Now people are questioning that, and the University of California, um, the whole system, just voted that they are that they that they will not obey with this law. That they are going to designate certain amount of money for these underrepresented groups. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now. Uh, you know, you can look at it both ways. As I said, the 25 years ago, I remember when this happened was that there was a it was a legal suit 
you know, where a white male didn't get accepted into a medical school. I think it was in the University of California, Davis. Mm-hmm. Because a, I think it was a woman or black, I don't remember what was the other person got the position as opposed to this white male. And so he sued. And so as a, as a reaction to that, was was legislation passed and the California people voted for it in regular elections, Proposition 209, that, you know, no preference is going to be given to these, what you would call um, underrepresented groups, which included, you know, all kinds Women, blacks, Hispanics, and so mm. forth, and so forth, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, um, I don't think it's a clear cut again. You know, mm-hmm. where where you put your, how do you remedy? You know, the injustice, especially with the African Americans, that has been done to them for last 200 years. You see what I'm saying? Their their grammar schools and their high schools are are not, uh, except for some really very exceptions, but they are not as highly populated with highly qualified teachers and they don't have all the money facilities because in America schools are supported by local communities. And if you live in a, if you have a school in a relatively poor community, then the taxation from which the money comes from is much smaller. So therefore you have much less money as opposed to in uh, expensive communities. Now in Europe, mm-hmm. very different because all schools are supported by the central government. Exactly. Yeah. You see. Yeah. I think that's interesting point here about free funding and politics, and how this yes. affects in in academic as well. And I, absolutely, I, I think you have this uh, rich experience. What's your thoughts about this practice, incorporating politics and funding or affecting on academic research? Well, I regret to say that whenever you have money involved, there is always politics. I mean, they they go hand by hand. Um, But, you know, what this really, uh, this uh, all Black Lives Matters, you know, this whole movement mm-hmm. and the tragedies that really um, inspired this movement is really pointing to a much deeper question. <clears throat> How do you organize a democratic society? Mm. And, um, you know, and it's not just the killing of the blacks, but it's also, I think, for a while, this country has been quite polarized. 
I think it started with Obama presidency, where some of the <clears throat> the less educated white men, in particular, felt that you know they were not given the right justice, and so so it's it's a cumulative effect of what we are experiencing now. But the truth is that. And people are starting to the political scientists and all these different, you know, think tanks are, are starting to really think about it. How do you organize a democratic society in particular? Because remember the, the rules and regulations that we have um, are more or less 200 years old. And the technology mm -hmm. that I and many others have contributed with all this connectivity and, and networking and all that <clears throat> has really made a, shook up this basic, basic promise upon which our country was based 200 years ago. At mm -hmm. that time, you know, the politics or the people who were supposed to vote and so forth, they were influenced by by the newspapers. That was it. And so if you if you owned a newspaper you could really influence the electorate. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And the other thing was that um, people I mean it was a relatively sparsely populated country so <clears throat> so a lot of these politicians like Lincoln and and Washington and Adams and all these guys they were when they were um, recruiting for their cause they had to travel with you know I I don't think railroad was at that time or if there was was on a very limited space so they had to travel on horse wagons and stuff like that so the communication part was much more limited see what i'm saying yeah that really you know that really um makes a big difference how you influence the population and democracy is built on somehow the common understanding and common willingness to go for certain rules and regulations. I think this is a really powerful point and very important and maybe underestimated to be discussed deeply. Do you think in that case, how do you see the practices recently for academia, how we change, how we can change that? Well, as you see, the, the young people are now, your generation is, is really energized. And how do, do you get energized? Through your, your cell phone. We're constantly on the cell phone, right? <laughs> At least that's what I see with my grandchildren. So, you know, you are very much influenced by, as I said, by and, and, and unfortunately, the network being so-called neutral, so any 
good or bad information you can put on and and so you can propagate all kinds of fake information mm. and unless you have an educated and this was look this really goes back to the greeks when they established the democracy democracy assumes that you have an educated population yeah okay and so that they can make their mind up independently but if you don't have that then you can be influenced by buying your votes and influencing you by fear as we observe now right so you can play on these negative emotions mm-hmm. that then get your get you all the responses you want yeah. that's powerful uh, indeed and and i would like to ask you in 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 such a situation like when you face politics and maybe maybe recently we have this issue that you can fulfill your goals in research or maybe what you want at the long term because of funding that require short-term deliverable for what you're doing what is your because you have this overwhelming experience what is your mantra when you're facing just setbacks when you want to do mathematics department and you want to industry and then you go to stanford all this journey what is your something just keep you forward what is something inside you tells you you will reach what you want what that this is a more of a very delicate question that you are asking because <clears throat> there are definitely generational differences so i come from generation where i went to academia because i cherished mm. freedom that I can explore the unexplored mm-hmm. and investigate the, 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 the grounds that are not broken yeah. with full understanding that I will not make much money. Mm. And I kind of trade, trade off this freedom for getting rich. Mm. Because even in my generation, there were some people who really went to work for companies or, or had some ambition to start companies. And um, because they really were more interested, well, it was not always only money, they also wanted to create a product that might be useful but nevertheless it was a product that would enter the market rather quickly as opposed to research is always at least five to ten years ahead of time and not every research turns into a practical device or system so so that was at that time however once the intern remember i started my career in this country in the 60s right so at that time software was really almost non-existent mm. 
And um, so once the network king came about, which was around late 70s, 80s, and people could start to think about various applications, that offered an opportunity to, with software, because with software you can change things quickly. With hardware, it's much harder. You have to, you know, replace parts and make different designs and so. So changing hardware is much more a long-term enterprise than changing software. And so, as I said, in the 80s, what happened in the 90s, actually, the Google people started out. The Microsoft was in the 80s, but then Google came on the 90s, so did Facebook and all these companies that benefited from this networking mm. capacity, okay, and, and software development, which means that it work, you can change it with the stroke of the, the keyboard. Um, and so these people suddenly got very quickly very rich. And um, that kind of influenced the next generation to think about more short term, you know, how can I make quickly money? And it developed a generation that I am afraid that is is extremely focused on, I shouldn't say all, because it's always some exceptions, but by and large, is many more of that generation is interested in technology that makes money rather than in basic research than it was in my generation. Hmm. That's interesting. So now, yeah. mind you, you know, in my generation, we were not poor, mm. okay, but um, we were definitely not millionaires by any means, as these young people are. Yeah, yeah. I think that's maybe the question here, studio listening to you, and this experience you witnessed all these changes happening, and maybe because now most of the system is really based on capitalism. Uh, now in our world, and that's hard to be honest. Um, how you see if you're in academia and you want to make transition to start your own business? How you see the transition of technology develop, for example, robotics or AI to real world? What's the challenges you think? What is the missing gap here? Well, the challenges I see is that <clears throat> industry that is supporting academia and Believe me, it's not a small amount of money they are investing. Mm. Those people are really interested in products that are two to four years or so ahead because they have to make money too, right? Yeah. And so they want some return on their investment and so they certainly are not interested in long-term open problems. Mm. Unfortunately, it used to be that in the, that government 
the United States government had the National Science Foundation and a few other and the Department of Defense, that there were always certain pockets of money designated for long-term speculative research that maybe not brings any new devices or a new software that you know make mm. more money it's really more you know foundational question understanding what this system can or cannot do it so forth and so on <clears throat> but i think this is very powerful and that, yeah, regrettably yeah. those those pockets of money are 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 visibly diminishing mm. which is very unfortunate because you know, if somebody is not going to look for what's going to happen five to ten years, rather than two to five years, then um, the country will suffer economically. Yeah. I, I really like this point so much. I think you stressing an, a really uh, like alarming to how the fund is going in research and it's, it's extremely important yeah that, I, I can you know yeah. it's interesting that in the medical studies mm. in some ways you can argue with the congress and people who allocate money well you know we want to understand the brain because we are all getting older and and we want to slow down that process or we want to we want to um, um, cure your cancer or now the epidemics so, you know, so so the congress people are not specialists but they if you make these arguments they mm. will allocate money in in the engineering sciences when you say I really need to understand how a robotic mechanism is going to adapt itself to different environments so that it can help, you know, in your home, which every home will be different, uh, and it interacts with the physical world. That is a kind of a goal which is too abstract for the congressmen and these people will say oh it would be nice to have a, uni a kind of a semi-universal robot but if I don't have it it's not the end of the world. Do you see what I'm saying? I see. There is a profound difference between um, engineering how you sell the, the, the deeper questions to congress and the public then when it is in medical sciences, I give you, forget the robots, think about it, um, that you want to design a better, or understand really the transportation problem, how you move people from place to A to place to B. And this is extremely complicated because you have, first of all, you have on the ground you have on the on the water you have in the air but then you also have long distance short distances urban areas and 
On top of all of that, you have you have to interact with people. So this is a very complicated problem, and to understand it, uh, it will take at least ten years. Um, I really agree with you, and I think that something maybe maybe the people who get to funding. I think we need to separate politics a little bit from funding research. I don't know. Well, you know, yes, there are people who are concerned just like myself, but I'm not sure, you know, look, even they, if they are active, it's much easier to make a case for, I don't know, $100 million investment in, in applications in concrete things that you can promise the public and the and the congressmen who represent the public mm. that you will help this or that and it's much harder to go there and say look we have these complicated problems but we really don't know how to solve them, but if you support us, we will chip by chip try to understand and mm. then have a solution. You see what I'm saying? I see it, yeah. I think here, I would like to ask a question for you. And that's, I think, uh, I'm curious to ask you, you say you, you understand. And, 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 you, and you said before that if you want to publish paper in three months, you can do science or maybe a contribution in, in, short, term, in short term. Of I mean. course, of and, course. And, 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 and I don't know if you agree, but maybe I'm wrong, but I have the feeling that you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. That maybe sounds simple question, but it leads to more profound answers. But when you do science, certain methodology or certain paper, it doesn't really serve the long term or what is objective, maybe, or what is benefit you can get out that? Well, the, we have to be careful because sometimes these short-term things could be as pieces, as building blocks, but you still need to think about it. If you put them to a bigger system, what will be the effect? Mm. You see? So it's not, it's not a black and white kind of picture I want to leave you with. Mm. It is a, you, you need a spectrum, if you wish, a kind of like a colored spectrum mm. of investments into science. Yeah. There, are, there are some low-hanging fruits, but the government should not forget, or the people, or the public should not forget that some there are some people who should be thinking and, and be paid for it yeah. to think about the long-term effects. Yeah. I mean, take for example, uh, take for example the global warming. Right now, clearly, our government, you know, is brushing it away. It doesn't. It's not immediate, and uh, should worry about it and so forth. But you know. There are certain things that we do today that will 
have effect on global warming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have also a message because many students also suffering from this point, and I think uh, you are the best one to ask you since you have all experiences. The culture of publish and perish, and that's something we've witnessed in academia. Oh, yeah. And to be honest, I have to be honest with this point because sometimes you're forced to publish a paper as much as you can, and yes. that's a trade for your legacy, maybe in academia in a way or another. But in in this journey, you. I don't I, I don't want to make sweeping generalization about that, but you miss understanding because you want to publish as soon as possible. And at, and I'm sorry to say it, it leads to unhealth sometimes competition who publish first. And that's something I, I it's like alarming and no one speak about what could be alternative to get well, around this. I have, I have speak I have spoken about this. I you know, whenever I have an opportunity I really fight this against that mm. You know that there is this pressure on you know how many publications you produce per year and my claim is that hard problems are not solved in three months yeah uh, you know there are little variations on on the same thing so you know it's really yeah it's very unfortunate how this numbers of publications are more important than what is the essence of the publication, what is the content. Mm. And uh, I don't know where, where we can start this to cut this, but the fact is that, you know, I have been told that, for example, especially the Chinese students are very keen on numbers of publications because they feel that that's the only way they have a chance to get a job wherever they want to go. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a mutual feedback system. I, when I write recommendation letters, I don't, I'm not interested in numbers. I ask for two or three most important papers and I read them and based on those, I write my, my recommendation letters. Yeah. But um, I submit that, you know, look, it's sort of, it's a reflection on the, the hiring people who are not perhaps competent or willing to spend the time to read those papers. Exactly. And so it's much easier just to count. So I always joke that these people have only an adder in their head. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, yeah, I hope this would change. I hope this system would change how the system is perceived. Well, build, you know, it's somehow to begin with, it has to change with the employers, mm. you know, who are uh, giving jobs, saying, look, I'm not interested in your age factor, I'm not interested in the numbers, mm. I'm interested in what you have accomplished. Yeah, that's powerful, yeah. And I, I really would like to go for, because you're a PhD supervisor with John McCarthy, and that's something that sounds very powerful that you had uh, him as a supervisor. And he's one of founder of, of the Artificial Intelligence Oh, yes. Oh, so yes. 
So I would like to ask what you really learned, what the legacy he left to you, uh, just to well, fulfill. He was a remarkable man. Mm -hmm. I I cannot tell you how much I admired him. Yeah. He he was a mathematician mm. who. Uh, you know, a logician actually who, you know, really knew knew his stuff, and um, but he also was a visionary, mm. and he really thought about the world in terms of technology. Um, as I said, ten years or so ahead ahead of his time, um, so. I was. I just felt very fortunate to to work with him because he also had a tremendous gift of memory. He he could remember numbers. Mm. You wouldn't believe it. Economic numbers, political numbers, all kinds of numbers. So he, when he made an argument, you know. He can substantiate the argument with all kinds of statistical numbers. It was remarkable. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting to be honest. Yeah, to have such a supervisor. Yes, I was very lucky. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. And 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 I would like to ask you uh, because we're closing to the end. Uh, how we can make sure the project we develop in industry, academia, for robotic AI, beneficial to humanity as a whole. How we can make sure this happen? Look, I will not tell you anything new. It's all about people. Mm. And um, it's all about people. I mean, there are some people who really are thinkers, who really like to work with some small problems. Mm. And then there are some people who really like to think ahead, what's coming, based on what I know, what, what can I kind of project, what are my aspirations. And uh, I think in academia and in industry for that matter, you need both, because you need the, the thinkers who really make things work. You know, yeah. on the other hand, you need the visionaries to give directions. I mean, John McCarthy was one of these visionaries. You know, he he tried, but he was never successful to to build anything. Mm. Okay. But, but he had this global vision, and then he attracted enough good people who could fill in the gaps. And some of the, his vision materialized in a short time. Some of it had to wait 20 years or so. So I think, you know, academia is like a small world, a real world. You need, you need a combination of both. You need people who can build things. You need people who can criticize things. And you need people who can have a really long-term vision and aspiration. I really like that. I really like this combination and this answer. Good. Yeah. Yeah.
do you think ego is important for the researcher? I think it's important too, but not everybody must have that. Mm. Why? Because they are all different. Mm. Some people really like to solve problems at hand, you know, mm. concrete problems at hand. And for that, you don't need, you know, you use all your tools, big either mathematical, physics, or, you know, your, your whatever you have in your toolkit, and you solve that particular problem. I have a, I have a grandson who is much more concrete and likes to just solve problems mm -hmm. at hand. Yeah. But then, but then you you have people who like to sort of say, okay, if this and this can be done, where is it going? Then you really need, you know, the ego to fly away and 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 push you fur further and dream about bigger, you know, the the, the future. Yeah. So you have the present, and then you have the future, and you need both, of course. Yeah, I agree with that. And what was the best advice was given to you as a person professionally, and was life changing for you? What was the best advice? Uh, oh my God, I have to go back and find it. What was the best advice? Well, I suppose I will change the question a little bit okay. because when I was five years old, I had a nanny because mm. my mother was a doctor, so she was you know, busy with patients, so I had a nanny. Mm. And she said to my mother in front of me, of course, Ruzhina is a very nice girl, but she doesn't obey. Mm. And that, in some ways, characterizes my personality. I am a very independently-minded person. So, and also, I have to say, I am quite resilient. You know, when I am picked down, I get up and I go. That's deep. I really like that, and yeah. I, yeah, that's that's powerful. Yeah. So, so I would yeah. say that for the young people, don't give up. You know, we all are different. We all have different gifts mm. and different capabilities. So try to find to to do things where. You can apply your gift the most, the best way. That that is my advice to the young younger. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, this um, talk with you. I think it's very Good. full of wisdom, and and there's no much better than to end with this advice. I really enjoyed okay. talking to you. Such an honor to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.